came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. And I am Ksenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Hello, everyone. Monday again, and we're back with episode two of season three. Hey, Jason. Hey, Sanya. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Long time no see. That's true. I'm still in my house. Man, we were supposed to be in Boulder together this week. This is so sad. But at least we're virtually going to the Natural Hazard Workshop, which is cool. Yeah, that's great. Uh, So hopefully... Well, but I, I still kind of hope we'll meet in person sooner than later. I haven't seen you for like a year. That's crazy. Someday, someday. I know, right? Anyway, so we hope you enjoyed the start of season three. Um, you, you know, we we like talking about history and we really enjoyed uh, talking to Scott. He really emphasized some of the points that we try to push across in our podcast. And mm-hmm. we think that what he talked about is really, really important. And I guess what we've also all have seen in the past few months is that disasters have become a daily item on pretty much every news channel, right? And in every news report. And it's not just about COVID. We hear quite a lot about um, the upcoming hurricane season. We've heard already about different disasters that happened in Vanuatu earlier this year. We've heard about earthquakes. So it's the kind of intersection of different disasters that is really affecting the society now. But We've also discussed on our podcast earlier, I think in season two, and maybe we touched upon it in season one, in that the way news reports about disasters really affects the way people perceive disasters. And this is what we want to talk about today. Our guest today is Dr. Samantha Montano. Samantha has been with us a few times. I'm sure you all remember her um, from previous appearances. And she is an assistant professor of emergency management and homeland security at Massachusetts Maritime Academy and science communicator extraordinaire, Twitter legend. Um, her forthcoming book about disasters and climate change will be published by HarperCollins Park Row Books in summer 2021. Welcome back to Disasters Deconstructed, Samantha. We're so glad to have you back on with us again. I think when you were with us before, we touched on some aspects of journalism and the media, and we're just so excited to dig a bit deeper into that today. So welcome back. Thanks for having me. So one of the things that we have talked about before, maybe on different episodes, this problem that we see disasters in the news all the time. But what we usually see is images and even narratives and stories about death and damage and destruction. And these, these kind of are the overwhelming narratives that are pushed out to the public. So we wanted to dig a bit deeper into to why this is a problem. So what's the, what's the problem with those being the dominant narratives? 
Well, I think there are several kind of interrelated problems. I think the biggest one is that by focusing only on the death and damage that comes with disasters, we are ignoring a large part of the disaster experience. By only focusing on death and damage, we're kind of, the media is kind of misrepresenting or at least underrepresenting the full disaster life cycle. They're leaving out mitigation, they're leaving out preparedness, and to a large sense, they're leaving out recovery. And even kind of within response, the way in which media is covering it, they are only covering a part of response. They're focused on kind of like what we traditionally call like the disaster porn footage, like the destroyed homes, dead bodies, weathermen standing out in a hurricane, the like trope of volunteers and red cross vests wrapping a blanket around survivors. And of course, we know that there's a lot more that is happening during response. There are these like higher level impacts, job loss, uh, transportation shutdowns, healthcare systems that have been affected that kind of largely remain on the periphery of that mainstream media coverage. And then there's all of the kind of quote unquote invisible impacts, the people who are particularly vulnerable, like people who are experiencing homelessness, people who are undocumented and others that the media for the most part ignores uh, even during response. And, you know, they're, they're focused on kind of what is most visually captivating, what fits into these kind of pre-existing narratives that they have. And in doing so, it really obscures our understanding of response. Then once response ends, the media pretty much leaves, particularly national media, local media is a bit of a different story here, but the national mainstream media is I mean, essentially non-existent in recovery, with the exception of, you know, an article on the one year or five year anniversary of the disaster. And even then, it's only really the worst disasters that kind of garner that attention. I mean, we just had the 10 year anniversary of the BP oil disaster. And there were a handful of pieces. And so everything that's happening in recovery is going uncovered for uh, the most part. A similar problem comes about in regards to preparedness and mitigation activities. Like in emergency management, the media is very reactive. They're not being proactive in what they're covering. Um, and then I think related to all of this, and perhaps most importantly, is that the simplistic narrative of death and damage really leaves out and again, kind of obscures the root cause of disaster. It doesn't make visible the systemic problems that create risk. It ignores the factors that have created the disaster. And in this way, it kind of doubles down on this perpetual reactive interpretation of disasters and emergency management. It doesn't allow for that proactive coverage of risk and disasters. And it also <laughs> serves to kind of prevent us from being able to hold accountable those who are responsible for disasters, the people, the companies, governments, the ideologies that manufacture that risk, they continue to kind of get away with it because there's no coverage of why these disasters are happening the way that they are. I do think there are kind of like two other important points here. One is that the kind of narrow focus on death and destruction really contributes to this like popular simplistic narrative of disasters that feeds back into many of our disaster myths. 
I, I think we talked about this last time about, you know, panic, chaos and looting. And then also it, uh, you know, this kind of coverage, I think, also creates this victimhood narrative that uh, can be both exploitive and, and also de-empowering for affected communities and survivors. Obviously, 2020 is a year that we will remember for a long time, I think. Have you seen journalists uh, starting to maybe come to terms with some of these deeper risk creation issues in the midst of the pandemic? Because we have this kind of more drawn out event, so to say. Do you think journalists are starting to ask better questions about disasters? Uh, maybe. I have started noticing a shift in just the past couple of years, specifically related to journalists who are covering climate change. I think those journalists, you know, as they kind of repetitively cover disasters, have started to notice some of those same patterns that, of course, we as researchers see all the time. And I think that kind of among those journalists, there's the potential for some of those deeper questions to be asked and some like more interrogation to be done about, you know, causes of risk and whatnot. And perhaps the pandemic could do that as well. I mean, there has been a somewhat fair amount of media coverage about disproportionate impacts and kind of the factors that have led to those disproportionate impacts as it relates to coronavirus. So, you know, Perhaps that is leading to um, better coverage in the future. Although uh, the extent to which journalists are fully making the connection between the pandemic and more traditional disasters and also like climate change as well, the extent to which that is all being kind of sorted out as, um, you know, different sides of the same coin among journalists, I'm not totally sure about yet, <laughs> but uh, but maybe. I guess in addition to the narrative around disasters, there is also a choice of words, which sometimes may be deliberate and sometimes may not just be very careful, right? So a good example is, of course, natural disaster, where we see that a lot in the reporting. And what we've seen with COVID, particularly in the UK media, is that the choice of words that are very relevant to war, you know, so there's kind of narrative about enemy and war and destruction, uh, which is very kind of defense-like. But what we don't see is that journalists, for example, saying something like, I don't know, political decisions rooted in colonialism killed 200,000 people when earthquake in Haiti stroke, right? And of course, I'm talking about general reporting here. And when we spoke about this in season one, You've rightly said that very often journalists don't have the right background knowledge. Uh, so it's not that they want to misinform us, right? It's sometimes they kind of just drop, get dropped in these disaster places and they just have to report. So how can we encourage them to change the narrative and to change the choice of words? 
Yeah, I think this is really important. And it took me a while to fully realize this and appreciate it. You know, when we see journalists falling into some of those uh, tropes of calling them natural disasters and whatnot, I really think for the most part that is being done out of you know, unintentional ignorance, not out of any kind of malice. You know, I think that journalists do need to educate themselves on disasters. Um, They, you know, like they said, um, they just kind of get an assignment from an editor and have to go cover a disaster. And they may have never covered a disaster before. They may have never experienced a disaster themselves before. And so, the knowledge about this event that they are bringing with them is the same one that the general public has, right? The death and destructive narrative, the myths that we have surrounding disasters, they're pulling from, you know, what they've seen popularized by Hollywood and what previous media has covered. And so it just kind of creates this cycle. And sure, it'd be great if a random reporter had read a Quarantelli article from the 1970s. But that, you know, I don't think that I don't think that that's necessarily a reasonable expectation here. And so I do think that we as disaster experts do have, you know, a responsibility to help in that education and and help at least with guidance. I do also think though that it's important to point out that we are I think that like disaster reporting is hitting up on these broader issues within journalism related to like the disappearance of local journalism, turn away from long form, clickbait titles, fake news, right? All of those other like broader trends within journalism. I think we also are seeing that replicated within the disaster space. But to more directly answer your question of what we can actually do to change this, um, I think the lowest hanging fruit is that those of us who do have expertise in disasters need to work with journalists to help provide context and direction for the work that they're doing. It's not, you know, just about giving a good one-liner to them when they call for an interview. It's about actually educating the journalist and kind of making an investment in their understanding of disasters so that that can be, uh, you know, influence throughout the rest of the work that they're doing. Of course, I, as somebody who does this a lot, I recognize that that's easier said than done. It requires a pretty extensive amount of invisible labor on the researcher's end. And it also requires a journalist who has the time and the interest and the freedom to actually spend having those longer conversations. And then, of course, editors who are supporting that work. So, you know, some of that's within our control, some of it isn't. Uh, I've also uh, found that, um, you know, there are a number of different groups that are working uh, on addressing this. So there's the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia. Um, there, I also just recorded a webinar a few weeks ago for Climate Central, which was a partnership with the International Association of Emergency Managers, where we um, talked about uh, kind of, or we kind of prime journalists for what kind of reporting is going to be needed in covering disasters that happened during the pandemic and how that reporting may look different than it has in years past. 
So I think initiatives like that, that kind of try to make things easier for journalists who are covering disasters is helpful, kind of along the same lines. Scott Knowles has been doing the daily COVID calls throughout the pandemic with various disaster experts. And I've heard from journalists that they're kind of using uh, the list of people he's interviewing as a jumping off point for finding experts to interview. Um, He's also had journalists on those calls, uh, which I think has been a really important uh, way to kind of have a dialogue back and forth between researchers and journalists. So, uh, you know, any kind of like initiative along those lines, I think is important. I've learned so much from working with editors and working with journalists um, as I've moved into more science communication in the last five or so years and realized some of the limitations and barriers that they are to getting authentic and credible science out there and kind of crossing over into different audiences. You know, for instance, with this quotation marks, natural disaster language. I've come up against like editors who say, no, we have to use this language because it's what people understand. Right. And so then we have a discussion about like, what can we put in quotation marks to kind of make it ironic and still use (laughs) it. So it's interesting. Right. And then you end up with like the metadata being natural disaster. And so that's the way that they're trying to feed it out into the, into the public realm. And then also I wanted to mention this issue where your your headline or your title that's going to go out on social media gets changed after you write something. Yeah. And so these are the kind of things that, and then you you start to get maybe pushback against your your title, and you're like, well, I didn't I didn't choose the title, you know? Give me a break. <laughs> yeah, I never know what my title is going to end up being in these articles. I've given up on it. I, you know not a lot of control over it. <laughs> but also, I think as researchers, we're not really trained to deal with media, right? And many people um, maybe have a want to say quite a lot and that would be useful, but they just don't know how to deal with journalists. And when the journalist calls you and they want to talk to you, you can't say, well, wait, I'll just mark this 200 assignments and then call me back in two months, right? Um, but this is how many of us operate, unfortunately. We, we want to think and we want time. Ksenia and I, when we looked at literature from international organizations and looked at policy documents and found, you know, the the really broad use of f- this kind of framing of natural disasters, rather than just the language, but, but the overall framing as something where nobody's to blame. And then you consider like the efforts that people are going to to make organizations aware of the problems involved in this kind of framing, but then that organization continues to use the same framing. Obviously, we don't want to speculate too much, but it's hard not to see agendas at play, you know, where nobody wants to upset certain organizations or or powerful people or politicians or funders in the way that they continue to perpetuate some of these problems that we have with language and framing. Yeah, I 
agree with all of that. I think that is where something I really struggle with, with is with kind of distinguishing what is being done just kind of out of ignorance versus what is part of an organization's agenda and kind of separating that all out. I think partially for me, I don't really fully understand how many of these media outlets operate internally and like where those decisions are being made and who has kind of undue influence over those decisions. But it, it definitely seems like that is a huge factor. But what can we do, I guess, to help people navigate these different agendas? Because very often they're hidden. You know, of, okay, there are certain outlets where we know what the agenda is, uh, particularly when it comes to newspapers, I guess, or, you know, news channels. But I suppose, uh, on the other hand, it's also quite easy to really get lost in all these agendas and, you know, get lost in fake news and real news and so on and so forth. So what, how can we, how can we help journalists and people? Yeah. Um, well, I think, again, I'll speak mostly to disaster researchers here, but I do think we have a responsibility to hold the media accountable. And again, none of this is easy. <laughs> like we all know that from our own personal experiences, but, um, you know, I think that we do have kind of a responsibility when media is not covering a major disaster in a appropriate or, or kind of like correct way or not enough, um, that we have a responsibility to get on the phone and say, what, what the hell are you guys doing? Right. I, there is a responsibility among us, I think, to review media coverage, to call out bad and incorrect reporting. I think we have a responsibility to guide people towards that more reliable disaster coverage. Again, this is all, you know, time consuming efforts here, I realize as I'm saying this, but even as it relates to coronavirus, I've been compiling kind of a weekly list of articles that are most directly related to emergency management and posting it because there is so much out there. The average person does not have the time to sort through all of that. And I think also just generally disaster researchers, we do need to figure out a way to do significantly more science communication or public engagement work. I think specifically within the discipline of emergency management, we have spent most of our time traditionally thinking about how to communicate research to practice to like to emergency managers. And I think that we need to be doing much more than that. It's not just about us communicating research to practitioners. There's all of these other stakeholders in emergency management, including businesses, nonprofits, journalists, and the public. And I think we're doing a disservice if we're not also engaging with those stakeholder groups directly. Again, <laughs> fully recognizing that's not an easy thing to do. But I think it is something we have to do if we are going to be successful in any way of striving towards, you know, effective and efficient and just emergency management, and especially in the context of the climate crisis. There's also this problem of reporting on newsworthy disasters. And Samantha, you've been trying to address this on Twitter. So um, in many disasters or looking at the impacts of disasters, we see that they go unnoticed because they're not 
maybe economically or politically significant for those who control the narrative. So for you, what makes a disaster newsworthy and why is that a problem to be kind of locked into this newsworthiness paradigm? Well, there's some okay research in this space. So there's kind of a few factors that researchers have uh, kind of found come up frequently in research. Although I will say these factors are not always the case, but they are often the case. Um, so disasters that have higher death tolls usually garner more coverage. Uh, U.S. media tends to cover disasters that occur in countries that have a significant relationship with the U.S., um, disasters that are more sudden onset usually get more attention. Disasters that are visually compelling are kind of more easily covered in media. And then um, a huge factor here is also what else is happening in the news that day, right? If there's a slow news day or if there is, you know, some other big thing happening uh, at the time of the disaster that kind of um, pushes it, it down the front page. So, you know, the problem here is, of course, that not every disaster meets all of those requirements. And that, you know, there's disasters that are happening in countries that the US media doesn't care about. There are disasters happening within the US that are primarily concentrated on populations that the US media doesn't generally care about. Not every disaster is a sudden onset event. Not every disaster has a huge death toll or is visually intriguing. And um, and media coverage of these disasters has a real tangible effect. It matters in terms of the aids that those communities are going to get. It has an influence over donations and volunteers and, you know, influences holding local politicians accountable, influences holding national politicians accountable, right? There is like a tangible effect to not having a disaster covered by the national media. And so finding a way to kind of break through news cycles and to elevate these disasters that aren't getting as much news coverage is really is really important. My work is mostly focused on US disasters. So the disaster that I tend to talk about uh, in relation to media coverage was the 2016 Baton Rouge flooding. There was for those who don't remember, there was a, a really bad storm there were 30,000 rescues. It became the largest response in the United States since Sandy. And, you know, it immediately was ranked among some of the worst flooding in U.S. history. And by every measure, this disaster, you know, should have been an event that garnered this widespread U.S. media attention. And yet the national media took about four days to start reporting on it. And then once they did start covering it, the narrative was kind of centered around why it took them so long to actually start covering the disaster. And it was awful. It had, you know, all kinds of effects on the response, arguably on kind of the early recovery. And it was just this example of this like stupendous failure of the national media to cover what was so clearly a newsworthy disaster. And there was all this speculation, <laughs> once they did start covering it, over why they hadn't. And, you know, the arguments were everything from, well, it wasn't a named storm, like a hurricane, it surprised us. 
you know, the national media tends to have a little bit of an attitude towards covering disasters in Louisiana. Anyway, Baton Rouge flooded, but still it was primarily rural communities. There wasn't really a high death toll. But the biggest thing I think is that it happened right before the 2016 presidential election. And that's what the media was focused on. And then, you know, the second then candidate Trump went to visit Louisiana, all of a sudden, there was this much more robust media coverage over the event, and it became this bigger national story. So you can kind of see how some of those factors started to play out in their coverage. I will also say that this example for me, personally collides with my kind of realization about some of this infrastructure within journalism that we've mentioned. This was the first disaster that I personally was talking to journalists as the disaster was unfolding. And so it was kind of my first experience and kind of seeing behind the curtain, so to speak. And I had about three days into the flooding, I had a phone conversation with an editor of a pretty major news publication in the US. And I said, why do you not have a single article up about this? And the answer was that the guy who covers disasters had been out that week. And I was, (laughs) one, I was shocked, but two, I was like, oh, this just like demonstrates this real fragility of the infrastructure that supports disaster coverage. And again, I think it like speaks to this issue of like, what is happening out of like, ignorance out of these like structural problems, and what is happening out of a particular agenda, right. And I think that a lot of times, all of those factors are mixing in with one another. Well, Samantha, thank you so much. As always, it's so wonderful to talk to you. It's so interesting. And I I do hope that you'll come back again soon. Of course. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You have been listening to Ksenia, Jason, and me, Samantha Montano, on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast.